0: Hello and welcome to the From the Vaults Rugby podcast. My name is Phil McGowan and this World Rugby Museum podcast will explore some of the greatest players and moments in rugby's long history, featuring first-hand witnesses, commentary and interviews with the people who've shaped our sport. This episode we will be interviewing 2003 Rugby World Cup winner Lewis Moody about his life in rugby, what it takes to win the Rugby World Cup and how he got the nickname Mad Dog. Right, Lewis, you started your career at Bracknell. I did. Tell us about
1: that. Um, so a young man or well a friend of mine, so my mum's friend, um, had a son called Matt Foster. And one day he came over to the house and said, mate, how do you fancy coming down to the rugby club and doing some rugby? I think it was six at the time, five or six. Um, I said, yeah, I'd love to. And being an only child, you know, I didn't have anyone else to play with. So ended up down at Bracknell Rugby Club and I think, you know, pretty much fell in love with the game straight away. Diving around in the mud, trying to trying to tackle people, trying not to do it in my face. But I was quite a big kid, so it naturally um, it naturally lent itself towards my my strength and, and that was it. I was absorbed in the game. I loved the club. I played there until I was eleven. Um, at which point I moved I moved to Leicester because Dad's job changed.
0: Did you come from a rugby family? Did your dad play?
1: No, no, dad never played. He was you know, he was sporty. I think he was county pole vault champion. Um, but he was he was a career businessman. He started as a sixteen year old apprentice, um technical drawer and then worked his way through his career. So, you know, that was his focus and he was, you know, absolutely determined to reach the top of, of his chosen profession, which he did. Um and sport sport featured but only as a as a young man.
0: Meanwhile, you're playing rugby, so what positions did you pick up or did you try all sorts of positions at the beginning? Or?
1: Well, you know, so actually very quickly, because rugby was full contact back then and they had positions and everything at an early age, I was a centre, so I played out in the backs, uh, and I stayed in the centres until I was 17. And Andy Walson and Brian Welford, who were two of my school coaches, um, both decided that... Or actually, it was Brian Welford at a county trial... Where I was trialling as a centre, decided that I clearly wasn't making the cut as a centre, and thought it might be worth me having a try in the back row. And from that moment on, um, I was a a six or a seven or an eight. (laughs) And you know, it was—I sort of felt like I'd found my calling. So it was an inspired piece of uh, coaching and decision-making by Brian.
0: And you studied at Oakham School, which got a very strong track record for producing rugby players. You were playing in the centres then.
1: I was, yeah, yeah. So well, so I went to Oakham from the age of 10. Um, Brian Welford, who I just mentioned, was my Gerwood's um, housemaster in PH. Um, so he's also my county, then Midlands, um, various different rugby coaches through my time at the school, uh, along with Andy Walsh in the home, and ultimately getting to uh, sixth form and the first team with Ian Dosser Smith, who was a legend of, of the Tigers. And so he was my first team coach. So I was I was really lucky that I had an incredible group of of mentors and people around me that were pushing me in the right direction. But my entire career at school was plan, spent playing centre bar my final year.
0: And then you must have been on the Tigers' radar from fairly early on.
1: Well, I was, uh, so I played, we didn't have the academy system back then, no. you know, we had youth team, 21s, Colts, you know. Um, the various different derivatives of the third seconds mm. before you made it to the first team. So I went through that system, but uh, it was only really when I got moved to to back row at the age of seventeen that I think there was any really any serious attention paid to me as a a potential candidate for the first team.
0: And then within a year, you're you're becoming the youngest player that the Tigers have put on the field. Yeah. So that's quite stratospheric, isn't it? Going from finding a position to playing With some of the best players in the world at
1: the time. Yeah, it was. It was. I never thought of it. You know, at, at the time, it was just another opportunity to play rugby, which was amazing. But yeah, so after leaving school, Dosser and Smith said, "Go down to the Tigers, see how you get on the first team pre-season training," which I did, which was terrifying. But watching all the heroes and guys that I'd grown up watching on the TV—John Owen, Neil Back, Graham Roundtree, Darren Garforth, Rory Underwood—all these guys. Um, so three months after that, I was. Oh, actually, it was less than that. So I played my first game, was it the July or the August? We had a we had a European-friendly competition at Welford Road, and I played Borromia, scored two tries, managed to out-sprint even to the try line. And I remember Rory Underwood just sort of waving me on. I thought, should I pass it to Rory? Because he's probably a bit quicker. <laughs> but he was just like waving me in. It was amazing. As a schoolboy that had grown up watching the Tigers, gone through all the age groups, sat in the stands, cheering all your heroes on to, to run out with your with your heroes at the age of 18 as a schoolboy still really was was amazing. No
0: sense of intimidation at all?
1: Yeah, of course. You know, I'm, I was totally human. You know, I was, I was intimidated. Never on the pitch, off it always, you know, just these are my heroes, Dean Richards, all these huge men. I was quite a shy kid, really. Um, I wasn't massively confident. The thing that I was confident about was my ability on the pitch. Um, so once I crossed that white line, I was really confident I could just play. Um... When I was off it less so so rugby gave me a real sense of you know self-belief self-worth and confidence which which has lived with me to this day and I feel incredibly grateful for that I had those mentors and support networks around me that that gave me those opportunities and then within a year of that
0: you're playing for the Colts England Colts yeah you've then got the the challenge of trying to get into the full England team and with the Holy Trinity standing in your way (laughs) yeah uh, do, do do you feel that like that stretched you as a player at a young age?
1: Well, I think just being at Leicester stretched me as a player because there was so many incredible back rowers there. You know, so there was obviously Neil Back. We then signed Josh Cromfeld, who was the other, you know, the best seven in the world at the, that time. He had Will Johnson, Martin's brother, Paul Gustard, obviously who's now Quinn's coach, um, Adam Balding, Peter Short, uh, and then Will Skinner. And there were so many guys that were all quality, talented players that you were constantly pushed, which is why I think I played and trained the way I did, which some people say you were such a keynote or a try hard or whatever, but I always felt I had to prove that I deserved to play on Saturday, so I had to had to prove that just by playing as hard as I could to every training session. So, um and having guys like Becky in your team at club level meant that I knew what I had to achieve if I was going to play for England. Um and I got my first chance under Clive on the tour in two thousand and one. And, and having had an unsuccessful time in 98 not getting capped on that tour, tour doom to New Zealand, South African, Australia, I made sure, you know, my mind was in the right place, totally focused on my myself, getting my body right to play. Um, and, you know, it all went right for me, and and, and that was the catalyst to get me in there. Backy back was injured or was out of the game for a little while. I came in onto the bench. You had Martin Corrie, of course, as well, another great Leicester back rower. Um and I think because of the experiences I had at Leicester and because of the professional attitude with which we approached our training, that fitting into the England team, even as a 21-year-old, was was much smoother because I'd become accustomed to that. You've understated
0: it a little bit there, but yeah. at times you had you displaced <laughs> both Neil Back and Lawrence Delalio in the team. Yeah. 2002, match against New Zealand. Would you remember yeah. that?
1: Yeah, well, <clears throat> I mean, that was my first real, the first time I really felt I'd, I'd been selected on choice. I never felt that I'd get selected at Tigers ahead of Bucky, Um just because of the history. And well, oh, he was a really, really good player. 2001, 2002. I was absolutely at the pinnacle of my playing ability. I was, you know, quick, elusive. I was loving my rugby, and I felt that if anyone was to give me a chance, it would be Clive. And and that was exactly what happened. So Baki got dropped for the first game against New Zealand, which. To his, you know, true credit, he was the first bloke that came up to me and said, "Mate, you've, you know, you're going to be picked for this game at the weekend. You deserve it. Well done, ahead of me." Um, and then the following game, Baki was brought back in. Uh, Hilly moved to eight. Lawrence was dropped. I was retained at six. Uh, and then, sadly, the the following game against South Africa, I'd actually done it during the training against Australia and um, New Zealand in the training weeks. I landed, going for a charge down, landed on my shoulder and completely subluxed my shoulder, which meant I needed a shoulder operation. So 20 minutes into that game, I was pulled off and then those goes, those holy trinity were, were reunited. And I suppose if I had any regrets, which I, I there are very few, um, one of the frustrations was that if I'd have managed to stay fit during the course of that international, would that have changed the makeup or the decision making that Clive had around? That holy trinity, um, because I was pushing hard at the time, I was playing really well. But uh, you know, those three individuals were a particularly tight unit and, and complemented each other really well. So I'll never know, but I would love to have seen what would have happened.
0: You, you nonetheless made yourself integral to the team. Um, there was more than four, those four or five back row players that were playing regularly. You played in every game of the 2003 World Cup, um, and your career had coincided with a period of history where England were literally the best team in the world, which mm. hadn't happened since 1920s, 1890s, and it coincided with you at the peak of your game. Yeah. What was it like to be a part of that?
1: It was amazing. Um, and at the time it just felt natural because Leicester again were uh, a side that were at the peak of their their powers. You know, We won everything, so I went from a team at Leicester where it never felt like we'd lose week in, week out, To exactly the same with England, with with you know six or seven of those guys from that Leicester Leicester team, Um, and you rightly said we were number one in the world, and we I literally felt like we would never lose no matter what the score was in a game, whether we were behind by thirty points, you know clinging on by one point, I never ever considered that we would lose the match, and it was a remarkable period of time really, and you know under Martin Johnson who just had such you know control and leadership of that team, he was he was a real natural leader and even to the point in training sessions where you know if the coaches are asking us we need to do more 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 and John I felt it was the end because we'd nailed it he would just say no like we've done enough we stopped there and it's not because he was a shirker but you know the polar opposite he was he was all about turning up and grafting but he felt that the team were ready why waste it by then going and doing more you know they want to peak on Saturday so let's save that um and we, we had so much, It was so much enjoyment running out alongside John Owen and, and Lawrence and my cat and and Johnny because we were all just hell-bent on one collective goal and that was winning at the weekend and we would do whatever it took in training to make sure we were ready and then whatever it took in the game. And the trust and the belief that that instils in you as players is, you know, is quite something special. Um,
0: 2019 Rugby World Cup in Japan is taking place now. Um how did you maintain that confidence and that self belief in the latter stages of
1: the tournament? Um, I don't think we needed to. I think <clears throat> we'd we'd proven that we could trust each other. We've showed time and time again that we had the belief to deliver um, when it mattered. And in those games, you know, the the games that we played in the build up to the World Cup, we we'd gone ahead to New Zealand, then um, had to hold. Uh, A lead, then we'd gone behind to uh, Australia. Actually, it might be the other way around. Now I'm thinking about it. My memory's so so poor these days. But so we'd, we'd proven to ourselves in every possible situation that we could come back from being a long way behind, and that we could hold on to a lead despite being pressured by one of the best, if not the best, side in the world, in New Zealand. So we had just this innate ability to know that we could do that, and then we'd done it at home at Twickenham and away against all those nations so yes when things were tinkering and and the pressure was coming on we just had to go back to basics and not and not overthink it we just we knew how good we were we knew what we could deliver and we just have to keep uh, we had to keep everyone calm and actually sometimes it was about doing less um I remember as we got further into that competition actually it was about taking away sessions and just making sure that we were fit and ready because we knew we had we we called it you know money in the bank We'd done all the training, we'd put in all the years, and we'd proven time and time again that we could deliver it. Actually, we just had to be fit and ready to, to play at the at the weekend in those in those final matches. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare Short-Term Insurance Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. If you have a home, but you're not always at home,
0: you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. And did, did you maintain that in the final? Because the final was far more unpredictable than many people <laughs> were expecting.
1: It was, but we were we were far we were a far better side than that Australian yeah. team. And it was actually our own, you know. Uh, I want to say failings, but our own mistakes and things that, that made that game a lot closer than, than it should have been. Um, but in hindsight, again, you know, when the pressure came on, we knew there was a, I, I was on the bench, the most nerve-wracking time of your life because you're not on the field. As soon as I got on the field, all those nerves go away, you touch the ball, you're into the game. And with a minute and a half left on the clock, you, you know, it looks like we're going to go to a deadlock and have to go at penalties at goal. Um Line outs called to me, tomo has got to make a long throw that he's never had to do all game, we certainly not hit all game. And people are like, well, were you nervous? But we weren't because we had just rehearsed it time and time again and we trusted in each other's decision making. Benny called it there, so we knew he called it there because they weren't competing. And you've got, you know, George Smith, one of the world's smallest back rowers, he's not going to leap and contest the ball. And then the rest is sort of of history. So um, a remarkable time in my life to be a part of that team with that group of special individuals, yeah. Did you watch the World Cup final in 1991? I did, yeah. As a as a teenager, sat in my house at Warland's Oakham School. Yeah,
0: because
1: I did as well. And there was a sense,
0: a suspicion that England just couldn't get over the line, mm. and it wasn't just rugby; it was other sports as mm. well. You were the team that did it. Yeah. What did it feel like when you'd completed that mission?
1: Um, it, for me, it was the it was a, a lifting of a weight that you didn't even realise existed on your shoulders. You know the sort of burden of a of a team, a nation, um, a coaching staff, families, friends, because we were the best side in the world. We knew we could beat anyone going into that World Cup. So actually, when we got there, without being arrogant, we knew that we were capable of making the final. And actually, if you watch the videos back and you see the end of the semi final, you know if you had that now, or teams make a final now, you see them all high five you know, and ah, you know like we did in 07, because making the final was. You know, in achieving itself, but in '03, whistle went, game was over. We shook hands, we walked off. There was no celebrating, because ultimately, the journey had been about getting to that final. Because we knew we deserved to be there, and if we got there, we knew we could win it. That's how confident we were. Um, So yeah, it was, it was a, it was a unique period of time. And and you're right, you know, it wasn't commonplace in English sporting teams at that time to be that confident going into a side, but certainly the. The enjoyment I got watching the the final in '91 with the Winterbottoms and the Carlings and all those guys, you know, I, I don't know whether it gave you added impetus, but it certainly inspired me to want to be in a World Cup.
0: I've got to ask you about your nickname, Mad Dog. <laughs> yeah. Um, have you ever watched yourself?
1: have ever watched myself. Yeah. What do you mean, like play? Or? Yeah, your
0: playing style. Have you ever seen it? Obviously we've spent many years watching. Yeah,
1: it. yeah, of course. So, you know, I'd never I never considered it anything. It's
0: well, it stood out, you know, yeah particularly after the World Cup when England weren't doing quite as well. Um and we might England might be losing a game, heads are down, and you're tearing across the pitch, intercepting every player, yeah, chasing every ball.
1: Well do you know that's that's just what I felt my role was in the team. I felt I you know I had a a role that I could help motivate, and I always just felt that rugby was a wonderful opportunity. I got to do something I love, and someone once said to me, "I loved watching you play because you played the way I would have done if I had the chance." Right. And for me, it was always about just leaving everything everything on the pitch. You know, I, I may I, I may not have got to play the following weeks, and I got dropped, and I got injured, which I did a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> but I loved it so much, and I felt if I could use my tool as an inspiration for my teammates or as a tool to get the ball back to benefit my team, then then I would. And it was just, you know, rugby's a rugby's about teamwork, but it's about community, and you get so close uh, with a group of players for just a short period of time, sometimes a long period of time. You really will do anything for them. And, and for me, it was as close as you can get to that sort of battle mindset.
0: Responsibility, yeah, right. And then 2010, you captained England for the first time. What was that
1: like? That was incredible. Um, I was very nervous. I didn't know whether I'd be good enough. Um, you know, I was questioned myself. Like I said, I was never particularly confident other than on the pitch as an individual. Um, but it was, it was an opportunity and a chance to do something that was incredibly special and, and to have the ability as a young man to be able to, you know, as an only child whose parents had invested a lot in me because they wanted to give me the opportunities that they hadn't had, um, to be able to tell your dad, i Look, I know. Okay, you you put me through private school. The academic side might not have gone so well, um, but look, you know, it, it all worked out all right. It was it was a really special moment, and I felt a huge amount of nerves and anxiety because also I knew it'd be putting my my family, my wife, my kids, in a position where they'd come under the spotlight more. You know, we we're leading up to a World Cup in two thousand and eleven in New Zealand, where the media microscope gets even greater. Um, so to say, I I knew I'd be be a wonderful captain you know isn't true I just I took the opportunity and, and looked at it like I did everything and tried to find a way of being the best that I could do um, he sat down with various different leaders and John Owen and sports psychologists um, to, to try and get to that and, and all I can say is you know I tried my best and I gave it my best shot and, and I enjoyed every minute and it was a very proud moment leading that England side out for the first time against France away Right I'm going to ask you about something else now yeah.
0: something that the two of us are both very interested in Um, You were the RFU's First World War ambassador for four years recently. How did you get interested in the Great War?
1: It was really simple. My um, namesake and great-grandfather, my dad's granddad, was uh, in the British Expeditionary Force, so the first wave of troops that went over and met the Germans in 1914. Um, And I was given his medals as a young man by my dad's brother, uh, Trevor, and obviously on it has my name, Lewis W. Moody. And it was that I was galvanized from that moment. I spent years trying to track down more information. Why did they name me after him? What was he like as a bloke? You know, what was, and actually as you research, he, he had very little time over in, uh, in France. You know, they had the, they had Mons, they had the retreat from Mons, which he was involved with. And then he was medically discharged very soon after that. Um, he received all of his medals and, and the Civil War badge to say that he'd been medically discharged. So he didn't receive a white feather you know, as sadly so many did, you know, that, from from various ladies but um it's just a passion i suppose also because a sense of adversity i loved the game the game rugby was a hard game you know there's always adversity that you have to overcome injury etc but i could never get my head around how on a daily basis you know you take a step and never knowing you know whether it could be your last and you know trench warfare the various different um daily routines i had to go through and then with the RFU in particular coming into that role was just literally my dreams come true because I spent so long touring the world with England and wherever we went any country I'd always spend moments going to uh, the various different memorials in each country representing the, the Commonwealth troops, you know, whether it's New Zealand, Australia, South Africa, etc. Um, and that was my sort of time to just reflect and actually just escape the what was going on rugby for me and and it was just always a hobby and a passion. So that four years and, and doing it with with yourself, for, you know, the knowledge that you have of the England players and their histories was just a wonderful um, experience. 27 England internationals lost their life in the
0: First mm. World War. There's stories of bravery attached to each of them. Does any one in particular stand out for you? Uh,
1: they do because you get to know some, you know, the more you research it, the more you... You get to know the stories, but, but really, you're right. There's so many. There's Oscar Schwartz, you know, who was a South African cricketer, um, came over and and he only had two caps, but he was an MC, survived all the major battles of the war, only to get influenza and die, you know, seven days after the end. Um, you know, there's, there's Edgar Mobbs really, who is just a remarkable human being, signs up, wasn't allowed to join, signs up, um, by, Taking the mic at halftime at Northampton, galvanizing all the people in the stand. Going down to recruiting office, ends up taking the regiment over. Goes from a private to a lieutenant colonel in a year and a half, and dies trying to take on a a, a bunker. Was at Lone Star Post, you know, trying to take it out with I grenades. Yeah, and uh, you know, but all of those stories, the ones that really stick in my mind, there was sort of, I have rose tinted glasses around this story, but um, Jack King and, and Noel Slowcock. Um, in two different regiments. Noel Slowcock's going off to France with um, with the London, Liverpool Scottish Regiment. Um, Jack King's in the Hussars and they have a chance conversation. Slowcock says, well, we're going to France, why don't you come over? Why don't you switch regiments and, and come with us? Which he did. They obviously then fought in the Battle of the Somme and... Uh, and um, the attack on Guillemot, Guillemot and, uh, and both died in that same attack on that same day and part of me has this rose-tinted vision that they were side by side you know, teammates mm. although they didn't play on the same England side um, going over the top together you know, I just, there's been some I went recently back to the same fields retracing their steps and still the paraphernalia scattered around the fields you know, live grenade in the side of the field you know, German shell cases entrenching tools the the war it's like living history and and I felt such a connection to those individuals whose names were on the walls that we used to walk past as an England player that to have had the 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 great fortune and privilege to have gone and commemorated them and been a part of their remembrance was was again you know a very special moment in my life.
0: I'll just extend that about the Jack King story to his enlistment. So he was a, a Yorkshire sheep farmer. Yeah. Five foot five, too short to enlist. Yeah. And what did he do? He stood in the recruiting office for three days, I think.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kept, <clears throat> was told to go away and come back and go away and come back. And he did. <laughs> they said he wasn't tall enough, didn't he? I can't remember the exact uh, story now. You, probably, you yeah. probably remember it better than me. But finally was... Uh, I think did he refuse to go eventually, and he they just, said,
0: yeah, he just stayed there until they took him. Yeah,
1: point blank. I mean, that just shows how much. I mean, you, when you read about him as a player as well, they talked about this lion-hearted individual. You know, it was it was it was very short, similar sort of size to Back. Um but you can just imagine the manner in which he would have gone about um, getting into the army, and then the manner he would have gone about being a soldier. And there was great articles written about, you know, those two in particular, and about what a loss it was to to the game, but to us as a, as a whole because they were just such incredible inspirations there was one about slowcock saying that you know if uh, there wasn't much known about how he died from the war diaries i think they've got destroyed during the blitz but um there was a great article in the in the Roll of honor book in the, the world rugby museum um that says you know um if no snow if no slowcock was to go down then it Then we would wish it was in a in a hand to hand combat because that is the way he would have wanted it. And images of him reminded us of the berserkers of old, you know. Just you can just imagine this enormous man, the way that people imagined him on the rugby field, how they imagined him going into battle. But um, the reality is, it probably was was not like that, especially at Guillemot. Um, But yeah, remarkable stories of of just incredible bravery, but young men that you know that all played for their country and and then gave so much for the country.
0: Lewis, it's been a pleasure, thank you very much. Thanks, Phil. Thanks for listening to From the Vaults. If you're not already, please follow us on at WRugbyMuseum at Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Sign up to our blog, also called From the Vaults on WordPress, and more importantly, come down and visit the World Rugby Museum here at Swickenham Stadium. Please subscribe to From the Vaults for regular content like this.